Tonight's theme is the light of the world. We've been in a sermon series, the I Am Statements of Jesus in the book of John. Um, Just to recap a little bit, last week, Seth took us through John chapter 6, and this is where Jesus teaches us that he's the bread of life. We learned that Jesus has come to the world as a source of eternal spiritual sustenance and life. But this teaching challenges his potential followers who are more concerned with their temporal needs and Jesus's miracles than they are about their spiritual state. And as a result, many would-be disciples deserted Jesus at the end of John chapter 6. I'm going to pick up tonight uh, where the story leaves off actually in John chapter 7, although our key verse is in John chapter 8. Um, the whole 7, 8, and 9 are kind of one continuous story, one continuous dialogue, and I believe Jesus has something to say to us tonight through the three chapters about who he is in the world, why he has come, and how we can open ourselves up to better receive his message. Um, So I'm going to pray again because I've had a very long week and I'm, yeah, I'm just going to (laughs) pray. Yeah, and then I'm going to open up with a little story. Okay, well, Jesus... Um, Yeah, we come to you tonight. You've already been in this room, Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. Um, Would you just move? Would you you be here with us? Would you speak to us? Um, Would any word that comes out of my mouth be glorifying to you, be what you want us to hear tonight, Lord? That if I speak anything on my own, that you would just let it fall on deaf ears. Um, But that what would stick, what would remain, would be what you would have to say to us, God, because I know you have a word for us. Um, through this teaching. So, Lord, be in this room. Uh, we give you all the glory. and It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Um, so I told you I'm going to start off with a little story. This is actually a little bit of a reinvention of one of Jesus' stories in Matthew 13 because he's a lot better of an illustrator than I am. So um, this is sort of my take on the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. So, an English 105 professor is looking to spread his wisdom about writing college papers to a class of first years. If the first years receive and understand his lessons, they will know the truth about how to write a good paper in college and be much better off in their other classes. Now, he's speaking to a whole lecture hall full of students, right? Some students attend the class, but the words of the professor fall on deaf and distracted ears. They care more about what's going on on Instagram or TikTok or whatever the current social media fad is than they do about really understanding what this professor has to say about writing in college. As a result, they won't really benefit from his teaching and they won't have an easier time writing papers in their other classes because they don't really understand his lessons. Now, some others attend the class and think the lessons are valuable So they start taking notes and making an effort to understand what the teacher is saying to them. But then the teacher says something that insults their intelligence, like it's good to draft a couple times before you turn in a paper. And they think that's stupid because they took AP English and they didn't have to do that in that class. So they sort of tune out the rest of what the professor says. They don't hear another word in the class. And so they also don't understand the teaching fully and don't look for ways to apply it in other classes. Now, some attend the class and know that they need what the professor is offering them. They know that they're coming into UNC as a freshman, and this is a lot harder than high school, and writing college papers might be a lot different than writing high school papers. 
So they take notes, they learn the information, and they look for ways to practice and apply it in their other classes. These students will see the real benefits of English 105 because they received and understood the message that the professor was trying to communicate with them. You can go ahead and go to the next slide. So why do I start with this story? Well, it illustrates something that we'll encounter as we look at the story surrounding Jesus' claim to be the light of the world in John chapter 8, verse 12. That while Jesus comes to illuminate spiritual truth in the world, not everyone who hears will understand or receive it. Um, we can see in the verses that I've put up here that Jesus has come to proclaim truth to the entire world. He wants all men to come and know who he is. But in Isaiah, in Matthew, even in Revelation, in Romans, we see that there are people in the world who will reject Jesus' teaching. It's a hard truth that not everyone who hears the words of Jesus will come to accept him and understand. So I kind of want to look at tonight, is there anything in these three chapters of John that will illustrate for us why that is? Is there anything that we can do in our own lives, attitudes in our hearts, that we can cultivate in order to understand the truth that Jesus is trying to illuminate to us a little bit better? Um, so first, let's go through an overview a little bit about John chapter 7 through 9 so we know what we're doing. So this is essentially three chapters of a story where Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's teaching a group of, of Jewish listeners in chapters 7 and 8. And it's a dialogue about his authority and his origin and why he's come to the earth. And then we have the light of the world claim in 8.12 and then more dialogue. And ultimately the Jewish audience ends up rejecting Jesus' teaching and actually tries to stone him. Now, immediately after this in John chapter 9, we get him claiming to be the light of the world again. But this time, his audience is a blind beggar. And Jesus tells this man what he needs to do to get his sight. This man follows Jesus' instructions, is healed, receives his sight, and then comes back later and professes that he believes in Jesus as the Messiah, the one sent by God. So again, what I want to do is to look at these two stories and see if there's anything in them that we can understand about attitudes that we can cultivate in our lives to make it easier to understand Jesus when he's trying to illuminate spiritual truth to us. So first, we'll look at the response of the Jewish audience in chapters 7 through 8. You can give, yeah, there we go. Oh, nope, back one. Sorry, this is my first time preaching from slides, so if it's a little rough. Um, little bit of context. I'm going to try to go quick. I'm kind of a context nerd, so bear with me. Um, so the Cliff Notes version of Israel's history. So we're talking tonight, the audience that hears Jesus are the Jews. They are the people of Israel. God calls them the people of God. They're the people he has chosen to reveal himself to through people like Abraham and Moses and through the Ten Commandments um, and through even the law that he gives them to, to be the people of God, to know what that means. And there's a period in Israel's history called the Exodus where God he leads the Jews from slavery to Egypt into the land of abundance that God has provided for them. But the journey takes 40 years through the desert because Israel keeps disobeying God along the way. But God is with them in miraculous and grace-filled ways throughout the journey and even promises to send them a future king who will deliver them from their enemies once and for all. This is the Messiah, the promised one. And spoiler alert, Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, there are all kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures about him. 
And so where we find our Jewish audience in Jesus in this story in John is at a feast, a Jewish, a Jewish religious feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. Every year, Jewish people come to the temple in Jerusalem for one week to offer sacrifices and give thanks to God in remembrance and celebration of God's provision and protection of the people of Israel during the Exodus. And they also anticipate the coming Messiah during this feast. So it's during this celebration that Jesus is teaching in the temple when a crowd of Jews begins to question him about who he is, where he comes from, and on what authority he teaches. So we'll pick up with Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, previously in chapter 7, during the earlier part of the conversation with the Jews, Jesus has been speaking in sort of veiled statements about his purpose here, who he's sent by, the fact that he's the Messiah. But the Jews, you've got to remember, were experts in Old Testament messianic prophecies. And so they definitely would have understood what Jesus was talking about when he was alluding to the fact that he was sent by God. You can go to the next slide. Um, so these are just some of the things that Jesus talked about in chapter 7. We get that his teaching is not his own, that his authority comes from the one who's being sent. We get this um, Old Testament scripture quote about him being the living water and people who receive him having streams of living water coming out of him. That's a like Old Testament thing that the Jews would have known that was associated with the Messiah. Um, yeah, and then we add, the, add to this the light of the world claim. And this was a pretty clear statement about who Jesus is. So I'm a language nerd. For those of you who are also language nerds, I put the Greek up there. Um, for the other people who don't care, uh, here's a rough idea of what Jesus' Jewish audience probably would have heard from Jesus that day. I am the source of the knowledge of truth in this world of spiritual confusion and sin. Whoever becomes my disciple will not stay in ignorance, but will have the truth that brings perfect, genuine, eternal life. Next slide. As if this isn't obvious enough, during the Feast of Tabernacles, where we are right now in John, there's a celebration called the Light Ceremony that commemorates God's presence as the pillar of fire with Israel during the Exodus. So there was this phenomenon during Exodus where God's presence came down and guided Israel through the desert in this giant pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day. And the Israelites celebrated this during the light ceremony during the Feast of Tabernacles. And this happened the night before Jesus said he was the light of the world. So what you've got here is Jesus standing in the part of the temple, most likely, where there's four giant candelabras or like big chandeliers behind him. And he's saying that he's the light of the world and right behind him is this symbol of God's presence. And so what he's really communicating to this Jewish audience is, I am God, I'm the presence of God in this world. Add this to the rest of everything else that he's been saying in John chapter 7. And these Jews should be like amazed. They should be worshiping on their face that the Messiah is here. But if we look at verse 13, we notice they go right back to questioning his authority. And they miss the whole thing. So how is it that a group of experts on Old Testament messianic prophecies could miss something that was this obvious? Jesus couldn't have given them a more clear demonstration, and yet they don't hear it. 
Well, could it be that they're not really pursuing the truth of why Jesus is there in the first place? I want to look at their motivations. I want to look at the way they respond to Jesus and see if there's anything in there that will clue us into why they missed this huge demonstration of Jesus's reason for being on earth. Um, So you can flip to the next. Oh, you're already there. Um, Yeah, so the Pharisees, um, there's some scriptural examples in John chapter 7 and 8 where the Pharisees are basically looking for a reason to trip Jesus up during this whole conversation. The Pharisees are the Jewish religious leaders, by the way. So they they think they're really righteous. They have this whole system of laws um, that they live their life by, and they think that that's how the spiritual truth comes. And so when Jesus comes, they're trying to basically look for a reason why he's less than the laws that they believe. So we get them looking for a way to kill Jesus in John 7. Um, We get them looking for a reason to arrest him. Um, They bring a woman that was caught in sin and they kind of throw her before Jesus' feet. And it says right there in the text that they did this to trap Jesus because they wanted to know what his response would be. Um, And then like we already mentioned, after the light of the world claim in 8.12, Uh, the Pharisees challenged Jesus with a question of credibility. So this reminded me, this whole scene reminded me of, have you guys ever seen a a politician being questioned by reporters? That's why I did this here. Um, I was watching a couple clips and like, y'all, it's aggressive. And they are not listening. These reporters are listening to the politicians, but they're listening in order to hear something that they can like grab as a soundbite and totally negate this politician's whole claim. And so what they do is they like jump in and ask a question and they pull back something that the politician said and kind of throw it back in their face because they're trying to prove that whatever they think or whatever their news source thinks is better than what this politician is saying. That's essentially what these Pharisees are doing here. They're listening to Jesus, but they're not really listening to understand his teaching. They're listening to find something that they can throw back in his face and blame him and arrest him and kill him. Um, So they're so convinced that they're right and Jesus is wrong that they're only willing to entertain a dialogue with him for the sake of proving themselves right via argument. They're not open to illumination because they're not open to hearing any version of the truth that is not their own. Um, Next slide. So there's another, oh man, it didn't work. Do y'all know that gif? (laughs) Yeah, any new girl fans. Um, Yeah, so there's another part of the Jewish audience that aren't the religious leaders, but they're also there uh, celebrating the feast. And they would have also known all these Old Testament prophecies that Jesus was uh, referring to in chapter 7. They are genuinely curious about Jesus. They're not just arguing with him to trip him up. Uh, But as soon as he says something that slightly gets under their skin, that slightly disagrees with what they believe about themselves, they're off. They don't agree with him anymore, and they're trying to, like, fight him. Um, So that happens in 831 through 41, and what Jesus says is, yes, you guys are children of Abraham. You're Israelites. You've had this revelation of God. You know the law. You do these sacrifices and all this stuff, but you're still slave to sin like everybody else. You're still in darkness like everybody else, and you still need the light of truth. And they're like, whoa, that is not what we've been taught our whole life. We're special. We're the chosen people. We're God's people. We're more righteous than the rest of the world because God has chosen us to reveal himself to. 
Um, they truly believe that they are righteous because their law and this whole system of festivals and things that they celebrate makes them that way. So even though they're genuinely curious about who Jesus is, when, when Jesus affronts that entitlement, that sense of their own specialness, with, him be, uh, with them being slaves to sin just like everyone else, they're confused and offended. And they refuse to believe the truth that Jesus is offering them because it clashes with their beliefs about themselves. In the end, they stop pursuing Jesus' truth because they aren't ready to change what they believe. And what they're really pursuing is not truth, but affirmation of their current belief system. Next slide. So the root of both of these um, responses by the Jewish audience is pride. Um, they're really concerned with being religiously superior, with knowing the truth and not being willing to give up the version of the truth that they think they already know. Now, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say that the root of their response is questioning. Uh, the whole dialogue through chapters 7 and 8, Jesus is entertaining questions about who he is. And the Jews keep over and over and over again asking him almost the same thing, and he's just fielding it. He never shuts down the dialogue. Um, and he's making a point that, like, he doesn't care how many questions you have to ask to get to the truth. What he really cares about is your heart. And, like, if you... If you need to question him, he's big enough to handle that, and he will never shut down the dialogue so, so long as you are in a place where you can receive the truth from him and actually understand what he's saying. So uh, the Pharisees are struggling with pride, um, and as you see the scriptures up there, Proverbs 26:12, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And Psalm 10:4, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. So what does pride do to our hearts? Pride makes our hearts hard. Pride makes it so that even when Jesus is trying to communicate to us, we're not hearing anything because we're not willing to accept any truth that is not our version of the own. Of Wow, the same version that we have. My words are all mixed up. Um, and theologians like C.S. Lewis, um, lots of other them as well, write about pride as the root of all sin and the worst of all sin because it is the one, like, sin is basically when, when you are unwilling to have relationship with God, unwilling to live in the plan that God has for you, and pride is the reason why you have sin. Pride keeps you from seeing anything that is God because you're all wrapped up in your own life. You're all wrapped up in your own version of truth and you're so unwilling to see anything that is outside of that. Why would you turn to something for salvation that's outside of yourself when you're so consumed with your own thoughts and deeds and lives? That's what's going on with the Jews and the Pharisees in, this cha in these chapters and that's why they don't receive Jesus' teaching. Now, we go on to chapter 9, and we contrast the Jews' reception of Jesus with what we find in the next chapter, Jesus' healing of a blind man. Unlike the Jews, this man comes to believe in and worship Jesus as the Messiah. So there's scripture. Uh, this is from John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, 
Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Catch that. He repeats himself. He repeats himself for a reason. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So the blind man is the opposite of the Pharisees in almost every single way. First of all, he probably would know nothing about the Old Testament scriptures because he's an outcast of society. If you check, if you look at the beginning of the chapter that we read, Jesus' disciples ask, him, ask who sinned to make this man blind. The people of the time would have thought that being born blind is a sign that you're a sinner, and therefore he's like ostracized from the temple, ostracized from religious life. He's not going to know a whole lot about what's going on. He definitely sees his need. He's not prideful because he's blind and begging outside of the temple. And so when Jesus comes up to him, he's so ready and willing to hear Jesus' teaching, even when it's something so ridiculous as like, I'm going to spit in the mud and put it on your face. I definitely don't know how I would feel about that. Um, I do know how I feel about that. I don't know if I would, if I would do it if it was Jesus asking me. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, then Jesus heals him and he is able to see guys literally his eyes literally are able to perceive light like if that's not a connection to the chapters before I don't know what is I was like dang Jesus this is smart the Bible is smart y'all um, and then later in the passage we see that he seeks truth from Jesus about the Messiah because he believes that Jesus has truth to offer and then he believes in Jesus believes that Jesus is the Messiah so I have that scripture um, this is after the guy is healed, then the Pharisees question him a little bit about Jesus, and then this happens. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found them, he said, Do you believe the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and worshipped him. So he believes pretty much immediately in Jesus, even though he doesn't know anything about Messiah. So what's the difference between him and the Jews? Why does he have such a different response to Jesus here? Well, Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And basically, that phrase, poor in spirit, means those who come to Jesus humbly, seeking truth in their sin and following his teaching in order to find truth. Jesus is looking for people not who know all of the answers spiritually, not who are willing to debate him or needing to, needing to prove their own system of religious morals in order to have salvation, but people who are coming to Jesus knowing their legitimate need and willing, being willing to accept Jesus as the one who brings salvation. Spiritually poor means that we come in humility to Jesus, knowing that we are sinners, knowing that we start off in darkness. Jesus makes this point as he wraps up chapter 9. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? 
Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So this all makes sense when we look back at uh, John 8, 12. Jesus tells us that he is the light of the world, but you have to follow him to understand the truth. And you're not going to be willing to follow him if you're too prideful to even admit that there's a problem. You have to start off in darkness in the first place. Um, And then uh, you have to be willing to follow his teachings about how to walk out of that darkness. Pride prevents us from seeing our ignorance and following his teachings that that might offend. But in humility, we will recognize our need for his teachings and be willing to do whatever it takes to get truth. Then we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. That's John chapter 8, verse 31, which Jesus says to the Jews in the middle of this conversation. So what I want to close with tonight, um, right before we break into our prayer groups, is then if Jesus is looking for a heart of humility, if he's looking for us to be poor in spirit when we come to him, how do we cultivate that in our own lives? Because I don't know about you, but if Jesus is trying to tell me something, if he's trying to illuminate truth in my life, I want to make it so that I'm in the best position possible to receive what he has for me. I don't want any pride in my life to block that out. Um, So... I have a few things here that um, the Bible and other like theologians and stuff recommend. The first is to check your heart for pride. This is a C.S. Lewis thing. So he says that if you if you're prideful, then pride offends you more than any other sin. So if you notice pride first in other people, if that's the very first thing you see and if it offends you, then like you might want to pray and ask Jesus if you struggle with this, because chances are you might. Um, The second thing is to ask the Holy Spirit to show you your need for Jesus and make you humble and open to his truth. I like to pray uh, Psalm 139. David prays this prayer uh, in verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path, path of everlasting life. In all of this, there's grace. In all of this, the Holy Spirit is here because we are spiritually blind on our own and we can't help it. And so if we will come to God, if we will ask him to show us, make us humble, he will. Uh, that's, that's kind of a scary prayer to pray. Because um, <laughs> if you ask God to show you an area in your life that doesn't match his plan for you, he's going to do it. And it's probably not going to feel great, but then you'll be in his will and it will be better than what you had had on your own, I can guarantee. Um, The third thing is to meditate on God's character and Jesus' teaching. Study scripture because scripture praises God. Scripture puts God on this high pedestal. And when you're looking at who God is, when you're all consumed with magnifying his character, then your sinfulness slowly becomes more apparent and your position of God will elevate and your position of yourself will sink. Um, as you notice the things about God that scripture says. And then the fourth and last thing, Joe touched on this when he did his deliberate servants teaching, is to look for ways to serve others. Because if we are, if we are putting ourselves underneath other people, if we're seeking to serve them, then that's going to humble us as well. That's going to help us to not um, have a high view of ourselves.